right. Good morning, church. Thanks, everyone, for joining us on live stream today. So this is the first Sunday of what's known as the season of Lent. And that's supposed to be the time of year where we're preparing our hearts for Easter. Hopefully you saw that on Wednesday, I sent out a brief message, just about 10 minutes long, uh, describing the significance of this time of year and how to make the most of it. If you missed it, I encourage you to give it a listen. It doesn't take long to, uh, to hear it. And uh, even though Lent has already started, we're only four days in, I think now, four out of 40, 46, if you include the Sundays. So there's still a lot of time to observe this season and to prepare our hearts for Easter. Now, if you heard my message, you know that I did encourage us to practice the discipline of giving something up for Lent. Um, I, I'm not trying to shame you into doing this, but I am, am encouraging you to consider doing it. And uh, in the message, I explained why I think that it's a good discipline to do that. Now, personally, I have decided to strictly limit my social media usage. Uh, I have uh, limits for the apps, the social media apps set on my phone, and it's not very much. It's like 15 minutes a day. And then same with my laptop. I got some extensions for my browser that make it impossible for me to be on social media for more than 15 minutes. And um, I did take them off this morning, just this morning, because I wanted to be able to be on the stream on my phone. So, but it's going right back on, right off, right after. So, um, <laughs> and I am planning on using that extra time that I gain from not being on those things uh, to make my way through a stack of books that I think will be good for my soul and that will help my relationship with the Lord. Uh, so that's my plan, and now that I've told it to you, I'm extra accountable to it. So, uh, so yeah, I encourage you to think and pray about something that you might be able to give up during Lent that frees up some time, some money, or both. And then make a plan for how you're going to use that extra time or money to, um, to draw it closer to God and to help make Earth a little bit more like Heaven. All right, so as Keith said, we finally finished our series in Revelation, and we're going to start another sermon series soon, but not yet. Uh, this week, I thought since Lent is beginning, it might be good to look at the passage that is an inspiration for Lent, uh, which is Jesus' 40 days being tempted in the desert. Uh, you might know the story, Jesus goes into the desert, he fasts for 40 days, and the devil tries to lead him astray, and he withstands the devil's temptations. And part of the idea of Lent is that we are identifying with Jesus in those 40 days in, in the desert uh, by deliberately fasting uh, from something for those 40 days. So if you have your own Bible, I encourage you to turn to Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for the chance to look at the scriptures together. And we just pray that you would help us to attend to them, that you'd speak to us through them. Lord, open us up to hear whatever it is that your Holy Spirit wants to tell us. In Jesus' name, amen. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. 
After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. All right, let's take a moment to think about the significance of the desert. I would say that in a figurative sense, all of us are making our way through the desert. Uh, because this world that we're living in right now, it's a fallen world, right? It's a, it's a world that is under the curse of sin and death. As we talked about in the Revelation series, we are in a tribulation period right now, a time of tribulation. And as we move through this time of tribulation, our souls are thirsty for what Revelation describes as the water of life. We yearn for something more than what this fallen world can give us. We long for freedom from sin and death and for closeness with God. And so it's like we're making our way through a desert and along the way, the devil tries to tempt us in ways that make our journey even more difficult and that drive us further away from the water of life. Now for the Jews, the desert was a very significant setting because their ancestors had wandered in the desert for 40 years. You might know the story, after God led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, they had this long period of time uh, between coming through the Red Sea and the Promised Land where they were desert nomads, uh, wandering in the desert for 40 years. And the Israelites did not handle that situation very well. Uh, they grumbled, they complained, and in fact the reason that they were there for so long is because they lost their faith in God, they lost their trust in God, and that led them to wander in circles for a long, long time. So, when the, when the Jews would first read this story about Jesus, they would hear something that you know, we might not hear uh, when we read it today. They would hear, where Israel failed. Jesus succeeded. Where Israel failed, Jesus succeeded. Because when Jesus went into the desert and he was tempted, he didn't grumble, he didn't complain, he didn't lose faith in his father, he passed the test. And so another thing that the Jews would hear when they heard this story would be, Jesus is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. So that's part of what this story is meant to tell us. Jesus is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. We're all making our way through the desert, and we want to reach the promised land. We want to reach heaven, the kingdom of God, right? 
Uh, but like the Israelites, we grumble, we complain, we lose faith, we give in to temptation. But Jesus has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. And because of that, he has made a path to the promised land for us. He's made the way, and if we follow him, he will lead us home. All right. Let's, uh, let's look at these three temptations from the devil. Uh, because as we move through the, through the desert, we're likely to experience the same kinds of temptations that, that Jesus did. And uh, we can learn from his example how to resist these temptations better. So temptation number one. If you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Now what's really interesting to me about this temptation is, at least on the face of it, it doesn't seem like a bad thing at all, right? I mean, nothing wrong with eating food, right? Jesus is hungry, Jesus has supernatural power, so why not turn the stones into bread? What would be wrong with that? Well, it can't be a temptation because there's something inherently wrong with miraculously providing food. That doesn't make any sense because we know that later in this same gospel, Jesus is going to do exactly that, not just once, but twice. He's going to feed the 4,000, and he's going to feed the 5,000. And he's going to do it by supernaturally multiplying the loaves and the fish. Right? So there, it can't be that the devil is tempting Jesus to do something that is inherently sinful here. So, why is this a temptation? What's the big deal? It's a temptation because as we're told, Jesus is fasting. Right? Jesus knows that he is supposed to be fasting right now. Now, when we fast from something, we're not supposed to fast from something that is inherently sinful. Because there's an implication when you fast from something that it's something that is appropriate to return to when the time is right. It's not appropriate to turn from food forever, right? At some point, you gotta return to it, even if you're fasting from it. Things that are inherently sinful are not things that we're supposed to, uh, to fast from, they're things that we're supposed to repent from which means we make a permanent commitment to trying to root these things out of our lives, right? But when we fast from something, it's supposed to be something that eventually we return to, like food. So the devil's temptation here, not to get Jesus to do something that is inherently sinful, but for Jesus to go against what he knows the Father wants him to do. And right now, Jesus knows that the Father wants him to fast. Not because food is evil, Right? But because right now, that is what Jesus is supposed to do. And so that's why Jesus answers the devil in the way that he does. Right? He says, it is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Okay, we might say that Jesus had a word from God that right now, he was supposed to abstain from food. Right now, he was supposed to fast. So another way of putting what Jesus says here is true life is not found just by satisfying our basic appetites. True life is found by doing what we know God wants us to do. Obviously, there's nothing wrong with wanting food. You need food to survive. And Jesus says as much, right? He says, man does not live on bread alone, right? That implies that, yes, human beings need food to survive, of course, right? But, to be truly alive, we need more than just food, right? We're not, we're not just machines, we're spiritual beings. 
And that means that in order to feel truly alive, we have to feel like we know God and that we're known by God. And we have to feel like the choices that we're making are in God's will. But the devil tempts us to think, no, 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 that's silly. Don't worry about any of that. Just worry about those basic appetites, okay? Food, uh, sex, money, shelter. Just focus all your attention on those things. But Jesus reminds us, no, 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 that's not enough. That is not enough. True life comes for li from living for more than those basic appetites. It comes from seeking God, wanting to do God's will. And that, as our source of life, is so foundational that if God wants us to abstain from food, something that we need for a period of time, our desire to do what God wants us to do should be even stronger than that basic desire, that basic appetite. Okay. All right. Let's look at the second temptation. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. All right, once again, devil's temptation here doesn't seem that bad. Jesus, you're powerful, you can do miracles. So yeah, why don't you just make it easy for everybody to see how awesome you are, go up on the temple, throw yourself off and angels will come and catch you. And look, here's a scripture verse that seems to suggest that that is in fact what will happen. So what would be so bad about doing that? It's not like the devil's asking Jesus to murder someone or anything like that, right? He's just asking him to show off his power. What's so bad? Jesus answers, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. What does that mean? Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Here's how I would put it. Do not ask God to prove his existence or his power on your terms. Do not ask God to prove his existence or his power on your terms. There's a story that gets passed around on the internet uh, in various forms. The setup to it goes something like this. There's an atheist college professor and he tells the classroom, I can prove to you that God doesn't exist. And uh, he holds up a chalkboard eraser like this, and he prays, and he says, God, if you're actually real, you can do anything, so prove to all these students here and to me that you exist by when I let my hand go, the, the eraser floats. Right? So he, he makes this prayer, and then, of course, he lets go and the eraser falls to the floor. And he's like, there you have it. And then usually this story, it, you know, it talks about, you know, Einstein being out there in the class and he says something that then makes the professor look bad. Or something like that. Okay, but the setup, right, that's what I want us to think about. Now, if God needed to prove his existence or his power on our terms, then he would have to make that eraser float, right? But I want you to think for a moment, what would it be like to live in a world where every time someone demanded that God prove his existence or his power on their terms, what would the world be like? 
If every time somebody said, God, break the laws of physics for me, God said, okay, it'd be a pretty chaotic world to live in, wouldn't it? I mean, I'd go so far as to say that the basic rules of cause and effect would be destroyed. And, you know, our, we wouldn't be able to make choices and then have those choices have meaningful consequences. It would be crazy. And so that's one of the reasons why Jesus says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. If the world was like that, if every time we demanded that God prove his power on our terms, then he wouldn't even be God, right? We would be Lord over him rather than the other way around. Now, just to be clear, okay, I am not saying that God never does miracles. I believe God does miracles. I believe that sometimes God even breaks the laws of physics, okay? But he does these things on his terms, not on ours. One of the ways that we put God to the test is by demanding that he protect us from our own recklessness. If Jesus had jumped off the temple, then that would have been a reckless thing to do. Right? He didn't need to do it. He would be putting himself in danger, forcing the, his father to send the angels to catch him. Right? It would have been reckless. And I think that we're tempted to put God to the test in similar ways. I'm reminded of a picture that I saw at some point over the last couple months. And it was of a family at a protest. And they were holding up signs that said, Jesus is my mask. Which meant, of course, I don't need to wear a mask to protect me from COVID because Jesus will protect me. And I think that's an example of the kind of attitude that Jesus is correcting here. You know, by that logic, Jesus is my mask, no Christian should wear a seatbelt. I mean, no Christian should take antibiotics if they get an infection. No Christian should have smoke detectors in their house. I mean, when you think about it, Christians should probably be petitioning the town to get rid of the fire department, because the fire department shows a lack of faith, right? Jesus is our fire department. What do we need that for? But Jesus says, no, don't think that way. Don't put God to the test. Be responsible. Now, again, don't misunderstand me, okay? God wants us to trust him. And God doesn't want us to live fearful lives where we idolize safety and we never take any risks. Absolutely not, okay? But God also doesn't want us to be reckless. He doesn't want us to be irresponsible. And he certainly doesn't want us to ask him to prove himself by uh, fixing our irresponsibility all the time, okay? So... He wants us to use the brains that he's given us and make good choices. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, before we move on to the third temptation, I do want to point out one more thing about this one. Did you notice that the devil quoted scripture? Did you see that? Now, that should remind us, just because... Someone can quote the Bible, even if they can do it persuasively, doesn't mean that they're actually led by the Holy Spirit. I mean, this verse, lifted from its context, 
that's pretty persuasive. Yeah, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up. All right, let's jump off the temple. That's what Psalm something says. Sometimes somebody takes a verse out of context and they say something that sounds persuasive and we go along with it, but then someone who's more knowledgeable comes along and they say, uh -uh. but the scripture also says, and that's what Jesus does here, right? So I think we should let this exchange serve as a reminder to us that we need to be very careful about how we read and interpret scripture. And we need to allow Jesus to be the uh, interpretive key to scripture. He's the one that helps us to understand it all, right? And uh, we need to be careful to try and understand all of the scriptures in the context of the grand narrative that all points to Jesus, okay? So we need to, we need to be careful. And uh, we certainly shouldn't think that just because somebody knows how to quote the Bible that they know what they're talking about or that they're interpreting scripture well. All right, let's look at the last one, temptation number three. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Now, of the three temptations, I think this is the one where Jesus is most obviously being tempted to do something bad. Right? I think we would all agree, worshiping the devil, bowing down to him, that's not a good thing. But I can imagine someone trying to make the case that what the devil is asking him to do isn't really that bad. And, and here's why, right? Because what's the end result? All the kingdoms of the world. All the kingdoms of the world. The devil says, if you will just bow down to me, if you just, you know, pay me a little lip service here, then I'll give you it all. And what the devil is actually saying to Jesus is, I want you to believe that the ends justify the means. I want you to believe that the ends justify the means. But Jesus knows better, right? Jesus responds, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus knows the ends do not justify the means. Even if the end is gaining the whole world, it's not worth it if you have to bow down to the devil to get it. If you bow down to the devil to get it, you've already lost. As we make our way through the desert to the promised land, we have to remember Jesus' response to this temptation. We have to. Now, I don't think that any of us are going to be tempted to literally bow down to the devil. Okay. But, throughout history, the church has been tempted to use the devil's means to gain power and to keep power, to gain influence and to keep influence. And that is, in itself, a form of bowing down to the devil. The church has been tempted to use means like lying, cover-up, violence, bribery. And any time we use those kinds of means, it's like bowing down. You know, I think of those in the past who justified violence against the Native Americans in the name of expanding Christendom. I think of, you know, the days when the church would burn people at the stake for heretical views. 
I think of Christian organizations that have denied or covered up abuse from their leaders because they think that they have to in order to preserve their influence, right? These are the devil's means. They're not worth it. They're not. And when we feel tempted toward them, we have to say, like Jesus, away from me, Satan. Worship God only. So how do we find the strength to resist these kinds of temptations as we're going through the desert? It's hard. It's really hard. Well, I think there's a hint in the verse right before this whole passage. What happens right before Jesus goes into the desert? What happens right before is he's baptized. And when he's baptized, the voice of the Father speaks from heaven and says, This is my Son, whom I love. In him I am well pleased. This is my Son, whom I love. In him I am well pleased. So Jesus hears this declaration from the Father, and then he goes into the desert, and what does the devil do? The devil says, if you are the Son of God, do this. If you are the Son of God, do this. But you see, Jesus knows. He doesn't need to turn rocks into bread in order to prove he's the Son of God. He doesn't need to jump off the temple to prove he's the Son of God. He knows, because the Father has pronounced it, right? The Father has said, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. He's secure in that. And here's why this is significant for us. The Bible says that when we put our faith in Jesus, we are what's called in Christ. That's a phrase that's all over the New Testament, in Christ. And uh, that's a whole message in itself, exactly what it means to be in Christ. But part of what it means is that when God the Father looks on us, he, he looks on us the way he looks on his Son, on Jesus. We are caught up in the love of the Trinity when we are in Christ. And so that means that when God the Father looks on us, he also says, this is my son or my daughter, whom I love, in whom I am well pleased. And here's the significance of that. If we are going to resist the temptations that come to us in the desert, it begins with that recognition. I am God's beloved child. See, the danger is that we face these temptations and we think, well, in order to gain God's love, I'm going to have to resist. But actually, this, this story, the progression of the story, it gives us a model that, no, you begin with recognize your, recognizing yourself as a beloved child of God. And then out of that foundation, you find strength to resist the temptations of the evil one. You know, if we want to resist these temptations, it's definitely worth recognizing what are the kinds of lies that the devil tells and how do we respond so that we respond like Jesus. And of course, that's what we've done this morning. We've analyzed those three temptations. But all that analysis, it can only get us so far. If we really want to res resist the devil, if we really want to stand firm, it has to begin with us recognizing that we are loved by God, that we are his sons and his daughters, and we have been adopted into his family. That's where the strength comes from. 
So I encourage you this morning to hear the Lord saying that to you. I love you. I am with you. And I will lead you to the promised land. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would encourage us today. I know that some of us may feel like we are in the midst of the desert, like we're spiritually thirsty. Lord, um, help us to remember, to remember your love for us, to remember that you are with us. And Lord, as we face these kinds of temptations, temptations like the ones Jesus faced and different temptations too, help us to, to rest secure in your love and find strength to resist. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.